You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. I want you to picture an iceberg. Like a massive iceberg, okay? Ice mountains rising from the sea in all directions. Ice roots stretching into the unseen depths of the ocean below. I want you to picture a massive iceberg. Biblical revelation is like that iceberg. Those those mountains, those ice mountains rising in all directions are the parts of uh, what we have in scripture itself. It's the words of the Bible. But the fullness of God's meaning plunges into the depths. And so when we seek to know God through the Bible, we have to go deep and we have to go wide. Like we have to read biblical sentences and paragraphs and chapters and books and we have to go deep. We have to meditate on the word and we draw out the implications as we try to seek to trace the depths of those ice roots. And then we can go wide and we can connect biblical sentences and paragraphs and chapters and books to other biblical sentences and paragraphs and chapters and books showing the connections between one part of scripture and another as we try to chart the breadth of the iceberg, deep and wide. A few weeks ago, Pastor Jonathan went deep in Exodus 34, exploring the meaning and implications of God's name. Just as, what is God's name? We're gonna go deep. And then last week, Pastor Kenny went wide and he connected Exodus 35 to 40 all the way back to Genesis 3 and then all the way forward to Revelation 20 and 21. And so here at Cities, we want to be whole Bible people. We, we love the whole counsel of God. And so, so when we do, when we come to the Bible, we ask questions. We ask questions like this. What must be the case? Like what must be true in order for that sentence to be true? Like what else must be true in order for that sentence to be true? And that takes us deep. And then we have to ask questions like, how does what God says here relate to what God says there? And so we have to go wide. We have to cover the range of Scripture, deep and wide. And doing this, our aim is to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus, both the breadth and the depth. And that brings us to Isaiah 45, the chapter Dawson just read. This is Isaiah's oracle concerning Cyrus, king of Persia. And Isaiah wrote this 200 years before Cyrus even appeared on the scene. And as we read that passage, despite being a pagan ruler, we discover Cyrus is the Lord's anointed. That's what it uses, the Lord's anointed, his Messiah, his Christ. And the surprising thing is, is that he's the Lord's anointed, even though he doesn't know the Lord. Cyrus doesn't know Yahweh, but Yahweh knows Cyrus. And the Lord names Cyrus and calls Cyrus and equips Cyrus in order to fulfill God's purposes. Like he says at the very beginning there, verses one to three, God will go before Cyrus and subdue nations before him and open the unlocked gates. Like no city is gonna stand before this ruler. He does this so that through Cyrus, he's go- God is gonna restore the fortunes of Israel because they've been exiled to Babylon, Isaiah 45, verses four and five. And then the kicker, right, verses five and six. Why does God do this? Why does he use Cyrus? Why does he anoint Cyrus? 
so that all people will know, I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. In fact, I wonder if you heard it as we read. That's a long chapter of scripture to read. It's a long chapter. Did you hear the drumbeat again and again and again in that chapter? The uniqueness of the Lord becomes the dominant theme of that chapter. Again and again, Yahweh says, I am alone the God of Israel. Again and again, the Lord through his prophets shouts, he alone is God. I just want you to hear them again. I'm gonna read them back to back, all right? So follow here, the trumpet blast of God's absolute uniqueness seven times in this one chapter. Verse five, I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Verse six, there is none besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other. Verse 14, they will plead with you, meaning Cyrus, saying, surely God is in you and there is no other, no God besides him. Verse 18, I am the Lord and there is no other. Verse 21, was it not I the Lord and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a savior, there is none besides me. Verse 22, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. And verse 24, only, only in the Lord it shall be said of me are righteousness and strength. Again and again, I am the Lord. There is none besides me. I have no rival. I have no equal. I am God. There is no other. That fundamental declaration of the Lord's absolute uniqueness is an invitation to us, okay, to go deep, to explore what does that mean So we're gonna ask two questions of this. So first we're gonna ask, according to this passage, what makes the Lord unique? What's what's the meaning of his uniqueness? In other words, we're we're gonna look into there is no other. What does that mean? What do you mean there's no other? How does that work? And then second, what else must be true in order for that to be true? Whatever answer we find, we wanna go deep. And so what else must be true in order for that statement to be true? So here we go. Three things that make God unique. Number one, he alone is the creator God. You see it, right? He forms light, he creates darkness, verse seven. He sends showers to the earth, he causes the plants to grow, verse eight. He's the potter who forms the clay and the father who makes all mankind, verse nine. And here we've actually seen Isaiah himself goes wide. Okay, he, he draws our attentions back to Genesis 1. See if you can hear the echo of Genesis chapter 1 in these verses. Verse 12, I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens and I commanded all their host. You hear Genesis 1 there? Or again in verse 18, thus says the Lord who created the heavens. And then notice the little parentheses, he's God, <laughs> right? right? That guy, he's God who formed the earth and made it, he established it, there it is again, he established it, he didn't create it empty, he formed it to be inhabited. So here here again, the Lord is unique because the Lord alone is the almighty maker of heaven and earth. The one who both formed and filled the cosmos. There is only one creator and therefore he is God and there is no other. Now, let's go deeper. What must be true for that to be true? What are the implications of that statement? 
Well, he mentions in the passage this idea of the pot, right? The pot and the potter. So I just want you to think with me for a second about pots. Like what goes in to making a pot? Like behind the finished pot, there are a number of other things. Like to make a pot, you first have to have some material, some stuff. And then you have to have a potter who molds that stuff into a particular shape or a form. And then that potter has to have a particular purpose in mind for the pot. Does that make sense? Like in order to get to the pot, you have to have a bunch of other things. So, and, and you could have different potters and different stuff and different shapes and different purposes in order to get to your pot. Like for example, the potter, he could, he could grab some clay and he could make it into a tall skinny shape in order to put flowers in it. That'd be one kind of pot. Or he could get some ceramic and he could make a little bit of a wider shape and it could go in your bathroom and serve a very different purpose. There are different kinds of pots. Here's the point, here's the point. There are things that are more ultimate than the pot that make the pot the pot. There are things that are more ultimate than the pot that make the pot the pot. Like if you ask, what's a pot? You can answer, well, a pot is this molded object made out of clay or whatever by a potter for a particular purpose. You can answer that question by going behind the pot. You can break the pot down into things more fundamental than the pot, and the pot then is the combination of those things. Now here, here's the implication. If the Lord is the potter, he's not a pot. Like if he's the maker, he's not made. If he's the creator, he's not a creature. Like if you're grouping things into categories, okay, pots go on one side and potter goes on the other side and there's a big gulf between them. He's God, there is no other. Which means that unlike pots, nothing and no one makes him who he is. Like you can't get behind him to something more ultimate and fundamental than him. You can't break him down into more fundamental parts and that he's the combination of those parts. No one formed or shaped him to make him what he is. He just is. Like if you go to him, like you go to the pot, what's a pot? And you can give this answer about all these different things that go into a pot. If you go to him and you say, who are you? What does he say? I am who I am. There's nothing back there to see. He, that's his name. That's what Yahweh means. The one who simply is, and he's the only one like that. He's God, there is no other. What else do we see? What does it mean? Well, second, not only is he the maker, he's the sovereign sustainer and governor of the world. Like we see in verse one to three, right? The Lord's gonna go before Cyrus and prepare his way. He's stirring up Cyrus in righteousness. He makes his way level. He ensures that Cyrus builds up his city and sets the exiles of Israel free. And all of the events described in this chapter 
are known and declared by God before they happen. Look in verse 11. Thus says the Lord, Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, the him there is Cyrus, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth, created man on it. My hand stretched out the heavens. I commanded all their hosts. Or again, look down in verse 21. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? Like, who declares things before they happen? Who purposes them and they come to path? It's God. In fact, Isaiah continues this theme into the next chapter. So just look ahead there in in chapter 46. Look down in verses 8 and following there in Isaiah 46. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. We're still on that in the next chapter. Now notice declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, I will accomplish all my purposes. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it, I will do it. So here's what makes him unique. What makes him unique is that not only does he make the world, but he sustains it and governs all of it. That's what it means for him to be God, for, him, for there to be no other. No one else does that. So what are the implications? Let's go deeper. Probe that iceberg. What's down there? What must be true for that to be true? Well, he's all-knowing. Past, present, future. Like he declares the end from the beginning. That must be true. He's all wise. His counsel shall stand. He doesn't do things willy-nilly. He's got purposes. He's got a plan. He's all wise in his plans. He has counsel. And third, he's all powerful. None of his purposes fall to the ground. All of them come to pass. Like, and, and notice this. He doesn't just govern those who know him and trust him. The whole point of the passage is Cyrus doesn't know anything about any of this. Cyrus is just doing his thing, and Isaiah is saying, actually, that's God's thing. God's behind that. God declared that before it happens. Now, you and I and every other creature have limits. We have limits in our knowledge, things that we know. There's things you don't know. There's limits to your power and your ability to bring about your will, and there's limits to the things that you govern. You have little bitty things that you govern. God has no limits. He's infinite, that's what that word means. He's not finite, he's infinite in power and knowledge and majesty and sovereignty. Like you and I, we depend on a lot of things in order to accomplish our purposes. Like, we need other things in order to do the things that we need to do. And our purposes can be frustrated, right? Think about all of the things you've tried to do. You've tried to do. God never tries. He doesn't say in that passage, I have spoken and I'm going to try. I've purposed it. I'll try. That's what you say. That's what I say. We say, if the Lord wills, 
we will live and we plan, if the Lord wills, we'll do it. And he just says, I just do it. Because there are no limits, no boundaries to his knowledge and wisdom and power. And when he uses means to accomplish his purposes, like Cyrus right here, he doesn't actually need them. He chooses to use them. He, he chooses, but he doesn't need them. He doesn't depend on them. And so he can't be frustrated. And thus we say, based on this, we say, God is omniscient, omnipotent, infinite, independent, and free. And because of that, he's absolutely unique. There's none like him. Finally, not only is the Lord alone, the almighty maker of heaven and earth, and the sovereign sustainer and governor of history, he alone is the living, righteous God and savior. Verse 21. One of the things that Isaiah does here, he, there's, some, there's, some, uh, there's some sarcasm happening in this passage as Isaiah considers the difference between Yahweh and the idols of the nations. Like Yahweh is distinct from all the gods of the nations because the pagans, the unbelievers, the, these, these people who worship other gods, they carry their wooden idols and they keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Verse 20. Again, Isaiah 46 elaborates. Look, at, look ahead there again. Isaiah 46, look at that next chapter. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops. Those are idols of the nations. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and I will save. You hear the contrast there he's drawing? Donkeys carry the idols of the nations. That's how they get from place to place. They put them on a weary beast and he carries them. God carries his people. Idols can't even save themselves, let alone you. But the Lord, he saves his people. He alone saves his people. Look then at verse five there, still in Isaiah 40, 46. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? That's the whole point of this chapter. Who else is like this? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, they hire a goldsmith, he makes it into a god. So here's some gold. You guys, we remember this from the golden calf incident a few weeks ago. Here's some gold, mold it, shape it into a god. And then they fall down and worship the thing they made. They lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, and they set it in its place, and it stands there, and here's the key, it cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it doesn't answer or save him from his trouble. This is the fundamental difference between the Lord and the gods of the nations. The Lord is the living God. He's not a statue. He's not dead and lifeless. He's alive. Like, like when Aslan is on the move 
It's not because someone, someone put him on their shoulders and carried him around. He comes and goes as he pleases. He moves because he wants to. Or again, the idols of the nations, they have eyes, but they don't see. They got ears, but they don't hear. They got noses, but they can't smell. They've got tongues, but they don't speak, and they have hands, and they can carry nothing. But the Lord, he sees, he hears, he smells, he speaks, and he carries. And he does so without a body. He does all of those things without a body. In fact, it's because the Lord is a seeing God that he made creatures that have eyes to image him. It's because he's a hearing God that he gave you ears so that you could hear him. It's because he speaks that he gave you a mouth. It's because he carries that he gave you arms so that you can in some dim way reflect what he is like. Now, get this, okay? There's none like him, like but everything is like him. Like, there's none like him, meaning he has no equal. That's the question. He's got no rival, no equal. There's none like him, no one in a class with him. On the other hand, everything's like him because he made it. Everything in some dim way because he's the maker, because he's the sustainer, everything in some way reflects him, especially those who are the bearers of his image. And so what are the implications? If we drill in on that, what must be true for that to be true? For it to be true that he alone is the living God and Savior? Well, think about this statement there at the end, 45, 24. Okay, think about this one. Just puzzle, deep, deep, deep here. Only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. It's a really strange statement. Because throughout the Bible, lots of human beings are said to have righteousness and lots of human beings are said to be strong. So what does the word only doing in that verse? Here's what I think he's doing. The word only means that righteousness is in the Lord in a unique way. Like we're said to have, when we, when we are righteous, when something says you're righteous, when the Bible talks about humans having righteousness, what it means is you just met the standard of righteousness. The Lord is the standard. The standard is not something out there that he meets. Think about it this way. The Lord is not merely righteous. He is Righteousness. You hear that? That's that's an adjective and that's a noun. Righteous is an adjective. Righteousness is a noun. He's both. He's not merely good. He is goodness. He's not merely, in fact, he's the good that makes all other goods good. He's not merely wise. He is wisdom itself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He's not merely strong. He is strength itself. He's the strong that makes all strong things strong. He's not merely righteous, good, strong, and wise. He is the righteous, the good, the strong, and the wise, and therefore he's unique. Like when we give God these attributes, when we describe him with these different words, They're not just qualities he happens to have, like red hair and blue eyes. 
They are essential to him. They're our descriptions of his very nature, his godness, because he simply is who he is. Maybe here's an image, okay? If you want to try to get this. You guys know how light works? Lights? John's back there. No. That's right. You don't, and we don't. But here's what we know. If you take white light and you pass it through a prism, what happens? Colors, right? That single white light refracts, that's the word we use, refracts into all the colors of the rainbow and just goes, and then you see your red, orange, yellow, green, blues, purples, all of them, I think that's the order, right? Like you get all of the colors of the rainbow as you pass the white light through the prism. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. God is that pure, simple light. And then when you take creation and you pass him through it, boom, all the colors. And we say, he's good, he's wise, he's strong, he's powerful. And he goes, I just am. I just am. The white light is refracted into all the colors so that clay pots have some idea what their potter is like. Like Moses, we see the glory of God from the back. We grope and we strain and we labor to find words to describe the Lord who is God and there is no other. So again, again and again in this chapter, the Lord through his prophet shouts, I am the Lord, there is no other. I am the Lord, there is none beside me. Almighty creator, sovereign sustainer, living and righteous savior. And that's why it's no surprise when we get to the end of this great monotheistic chapter, verse 23, I want you to see it. No surprise here when, when God says, by myself I have sworn, because of course, what else could he swear by? You swear by things greater than you. You put your hand on the Bible because the Bible's more important than you. That's why we do that. And God says, I need to put my hand on something. There's nothing more important than him. So I said, I guess I have to swear by me. By myself I have sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. What does he say? What's the word that he says? To me every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance to me because I'm God and there is no other. All allegiance comes to me. Every tongue will confess, Yahweh alone is Lord. Now, we just went deep. We're closing by going wide. Philippians chapter two. I just want you to listen. Just listen. Having gone deep in Isaiah 45, just listen. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who though, who he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, like Isaiah, Paul is celebrating the anointed of the Lord, his Messiah. And where Cyrus didn't know the Lord, Jesus does. And his humility and obedience is the model for ours. Have this mind like what Jesus had. Jesus humbled himself and his obedience went all the way down. All the way down to human form and from human born all the way down to death and from death all the way down to death on a cross. And then the turn, listen. Therefore, 
Because of that, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you hear that? Paul knows what he's doing here. He knows that this fundamental Christian confession, Jesus is Lord, does not merely declare him to be a human ruler like Herod or Caesar or Cyrus. He knows when he says that, he is echoing the words of Isaiah in the greatest monotheistic chapter in the Bible. The one that God says, I am God, there is no other. And Paul says, well, what about Jesus? The chapter that rang with there is no other is now shockingly, surprisingly, incredibly redeployed to declare that Jesus, that man from Nazareth, is not just a great prophet or an anointed king. He is Lord, the Lord, Yahweh himself, full of compassion and mercy, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He is Yahweh himself come in the flesh to rescue and redeem, to suffer and to save. Like Cyrus, Cyrus was the Lord's anointed and so was Jesus. The nations said to Cyrus, surely God is in you. And Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. The wealth of Egypt and Cush was given to Cyrus. Jesus receives all the nations as his inheritance, the ends of the earth as his possession. With God's help, Cyrus broke through the gates of fortified cities and tore down the doors of bronze. Jesus ripped the doors off the city of death and burst the bonds of sin's prison. Cyrus was the Lord's Messiah, but Jesus the Messiah is the Lord himself. And because we've gone deep in Isaiah, because we've explored the depths, the ice roots of that mountain and the implications of there is no other, we understand what an unbelievable claim is being made here. When we confess Jesus is our Lord, we confess he is the almighty maker of heaven and earth, the sovereign sustainer and governor of history, the living and righteous savior. We confess he's the potter, not a mere pot. He is the infinite, independent, unchanging, absolutely simple, omniscient, omnipotent, and supreme God. He is goodness himself, righteousness himself, strength himself, wisdom himself. To confess Jesus is Lord is to confess he doesn't simply meet the standard as a perfect man. He is the standard as the living God. Which brings us to the table. Paul knows what he's doing. And he knows he's not the first to do it. The shepherds heard it first. Declared by angel tongues on bended knees on the night of Jesus' birth. The good news of great joy for all people shockingly brought together Isaiah's words into one simple sentence that I'm guessing almost everyone here is familiar with. 
unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Not merely the Lord's Christ, like David or Cyrus. This Christ is the Lord himself, laying aside his divine privileges, emptying self, humbling himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And now when the ends of the earth turn to be saved, they don't merely turn to the living God, they turn to the God-man. The God-man who's represented here in the bread and the wine. Jesus is Lord and there is no other. Jesus is Lord and there is none like him. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we confess, we confess you are the Lord. As impossible as that is for our minds to conceive, Paul saw in you and declared You are the Lord, Yahweh himself, united to a human nature. Inconceivable. Inconceivable. And so, Lord, we worship you. We receive you. We take and we eat you. We drink you because you are life himself. We pray this, Lord Jesus, in your name because there is no other. Amen. We invite the pastors to come and we'll distribute the elements to you. His body is the true bread. His blood is the true drink. Let us serve you.